Turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. Our text today is verses 19 through 23. However, I'm going to be reading uh, beginning in verse 1 through 23 and then a portion of Daniel's prophecy, chapter 9, uh, following uh, the portion of Colossians. Here, once again, the very Word of God, Colossians chapter 1, beginning in the first verse. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to the, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of, of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you. Also, It has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God and truth. As you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to His glorious power for all patience and long suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He was delivered He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him. And he is before all things, and in all things, in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. And for our text, for it is pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and blameless, and above reproach in his sight, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. And now from Daniel's prophecy, chapter 9, verses 20 through 24. Now while I was speaking, praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, who I had seen in the vision at the beginning 
being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, as we come to this teaching on reconciliation, we pray that we would have a new appreciation for the gulf that was fixed between us and you by the sin of Adam and by our own sin. And that gulf has been breached by our Savior Jesus Christ through His blood and His resurrection that we might come into Your very presence as we have today to worship the true and living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Make us aware of how heinous our sin is and make us aware of how great the work of Christ is on our behalf. And make us grateful for the salvation You've wrought in us when we were Your enemies. Empower us to do the work of the kingdom through Your Holy Spirit and the knowledge of the Gospel. And we ask these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. Brethren, I was tempted to change my sermon this morning as I drove to church through that glorious fog. Some of you probably experienced it like I did. Coming across the river uh, at right about 9.30 this morning, it was very dense and and uh, it, it reminded me of how we as Christians don't really see clearly what the kingdom is like and the promises that we're heading toward. Uh, and reminded me that we have to act by faith in the midst of a great fog. Uh, so I was tempted to change my sermon today, but I'm not going to do that because I couldn't craft, a, craft it fast enough in my head. Uh, the, the, I'm a little bit weary from the weekend's activity, so uh, I thought it wise to stay with the, the sermon that I have. Maybe I'll do that another day. All right, turning back to our passage in Colossians. Today we return to our study in the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Colossae. Last week I, I preached on uh, uh, the sanctity of life, as I do each year. Uh, we're back here in the first chapter, verses 19, verses 19 through 23, and Paul focuses the reader's attention on the concept of reconciliation, particularly between God and man. Though the reconciliation between men, I think, is certainly uh, alluded to because of what God does in reconciling us to Him. As we shall see by the end of the sermon, this idea of reconciliation reaches beyond just God and reconciliation between God and man, but indeed, that is Paul's primary thrust here. 
And so that's where we're going to spend most of our time. The word reconcile in all its forms does not appear very often in the Scriptures. And that kind of surprised me as I was doing my study this week. In all its forms, the words appear twice in the Old Testament. Just twice in the Old Testament. And only 12 times in the New Testament. But of those 12 occurrences in the New Testament, 10 of them are in Paul's letters, his epistles to the church. It means a lot to him, this word reconcile and this concept of of reconciliation. So much so that he spends time there when, when other authors in the Scriptures do not. And I suppose this is the case uh, because of Paul's own conversion in, in, to Christianity. It was very dramatic. We learn about that in Acts chapter 9. And I can think of no other better example in the Scriptures of a man who was at enmity with God than Saul of Tarsus, as he's described in those first uh, three verses in, in Acts chapter 9. This man's conversion showed the world what reconciliation between enemies it truly would be like. He hated God. and Well, let me put it this way. He hated God's people. I think he had some knowledge of God Himself, and he would come to grips with that, that knowledge in its fullness when he's met on uh, the road to Damascus uh, with a vision from Jesus Christ drops him to his, his, his knees, uh, he, he would leave that place blind because he was in the presence of the living God. But he was converted very dramatically when he was an enemy of God. And I'll speak to that in a few moments. Just He was zealous uh, to eliminate Christians from the earth. And God was just as zealous to bring about His salvation. And praise the Lord for that because He has been such a, a benefit to all of us in his writings. But I think it illustrates that there are none, no man is too far from God's reach. No man is beyond God's compelling reach in salvation. Here was an enemy of God who was actually killing or having killed, having Christians killed for, and as the Scriptures describe it there, the way, and I'm going to, talk about that a little bit in a few moments. In the book of Acts, uh, the Christians were called people of the way. Well, that you're going to understand in a few moments, I hope, why, why that's important. But that's what they were termed. You, you would then be, uh, as, as Christians, called people of the way. Okay? And not just any way, but the way. And it's a definite article in the Greek. And so I'll, I'll spend a little bit of time on that in a few moments. We read in our passage, for it pleased the Father that in Him all the fullness should dwell, and by Him to reconcile all things to Himself. By Him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of the cross. God the Father, the Almighty Creator and Sustainer of all that exists, who spoke all things into existence by the power of His Word, including you, the one who has chosen us before the foundation of the world to be recipients of eternal salvation, it is he who has brought that profound circumstance to fruition through the blood of his only Son. And Paul writes, having made peace through the blood of his cross. 
Brethren, the point that Paul's making here is there is one way to God to be reconciled and only one way. It has to be through the blood of the, uh, that was shed on the cross. You can't get to God. You cannot be reconciled to God any other way. Reconciliation with God can only happen on God's terms. And Paul is making the point, these are the terms of reconciliation. This is where you have to go to get to God. Now the arrogance of man often misses the mark here. How can man understand reconciliation with God apart from understanding what God requires of him? You can't get to God on your own terms. You can't define the the means to be reconciled with God. He hasn't done anything wrong. We're the sinners. We're the ones that have disobeyed Him. We're the ones that have rejected His revelation to us. We're the ones who have offended His holy laws. And so for us to be reconciled to Him, we have to go to Him to find out how that's accomplished. We can't assume it on ourselves that we know how to do it. And so God reveals that to us and has in this very passage. And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. God has defined the means by which we are reconciled with him. And we must follow those means if we want to enjoy that reconciliation. And we too often lose sight of the fact that God needs no reconciliation to man. He is God. He needs nothing. He's done nothing wrong. It's man who needs to be reconciled, not God to us. Too many of us want, and I'm not speaking about so many of you here in the church, but mankind, too many of them want God to receive them on their terms. Well, that's backward. That's getting the cart before the horse. There are some carts that were designed with the horse in the rear, though, as I recall. Anyway, maybe not a good illustration, but I think you understand what I'm saying. If we assume that we understand better how to be reconciled to God, we failed already. It's a vain imagining. And such is the case with so many like the Shintoists or the Buddhists, the Hindu, the Muslim, the Communist, the Neo-Nazi, the Socialist, the Mormon, the Jehovah's Witness, and the list goes on and on. All those who declare there is some other way to be reconciled to God without the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ believe in vain imaginings. There is not a plurality of ways to be reconciled to God. There is but one way to be reconciled to God, and that one way is the body of flesh through death. Jesus' body and Jesus' death are those things that can reconcile us to God. And so we have to ask the question, why? The answer is rather simple. Because God has declared it that way. That's how He chose us to be reconciled to Him. God has declared that Jesus is the only way He will be reconciled to any man. Therefore, we must submit to His way of reconciliation. It is faith in Jesus Christ 
that is necessary. It's not optional. It is indispensable. Now, I've answered it very simplistically. There are theological reasons that attend it. He's the God-man. He was the one who lived a perfect life. And His righteousness is imputed to those who believe in Him. And so, there, there are reasons that Jesus had to be that. But when God says, this is how you're reconciled to Me, even the simplest of us, those who are young in mind, those who are uninitiated in great thoughts, even the youngest can come to Christ by faith. God says this. Embrace it. He is the Creator of all things. He's the Sustainer. He's chosen to reveal reconciliation that way. And this is the very thing that Saul, who would later be known as Paul, in Acts 9, 1 and 2, was persecuting. He was persecuting the people of the way. It's a definite article in Acts chapter 9. The way. Meaning only one way. He believed that he could keep the law and God would be obligated to him as a, as a keeper of the law to share his glory with him. In other words, a meritorious salvation of his own doing. Not of somebody else's doing. Not of the holy man's doing, Jesus Christ, but of his own doing. And the people of the way said no. We can only go through Christ. And Paul was persecuting the people of the way. That God, having acted to humble Saul on the road to Damascus, reconciles Saul to Himself through the blood of the cross. He, he uses the way to reconcile Saul to Himself. To convert him to the Christian faith. He comes, and, and po- very pointedly, I, I, I would commend to you uh, reading Acts 9 today, uh, this afternoon or this evening, in your, with your families, to be reminded of how pointedly Jesus comes and says, converts Paul on the road to Damascus. So now you might be saying in your minds, Pastor Hickey, we know all this. Why must we hear this again and again and again? Because from this pulpit, you hear it again and again and again. That's a legitimate question. There's nothing wrong with that question. Let me try to answer it. I believe the answer to that question is contained at the end of our text today. Verses 21-23. through So I want to draw your attention there. I want to encourage those who have grown up in the church to pay close attention. Because I think there's something here that we who grew up in the church, myself included, by the way, uh, if you don't know, I was, <clears throat> I was born into a family where mom and dad were, mom was a Protestant, dad was Roman Catholic, I was baptized in the Roman church, I was catechized in the Evangelical United Brethren Church. That church then joined with the Methodist church, so then I became a Methodist. Uh, by the time I was uh, about uh, 14, 13 or 14, a dear friend of mine invited me to a Baptist church where I heard the, the Gospel clearly for the first time. I believe I had heard it before that, but had not responded to it. But it actually struck me 
when I was at the Baptist church. I made a profession of faith. I was uh, converted to Christianity, I believe, uh, by the summer of my freshman year in high school. Um, was introduced to the Reformed faith at Cedarville College, a Baptist college by professors there. Uh, embraced that and then joined the Presbyterian church. So I don't have too many more to go. Uh, assuming I were to make some changes. I think I'm as far as I'm going to go in terms of affiliations. But I have had a broad spectrum of Christian affiliation, and I was in large measure brought up in the church. But there was something missing in my early days in the church, and that was an understanding that my sin was condemning me to hell, and absent going the way that God taught reconciliation, I would never see heaven. I would only see hell. And I had to come to grips with that. So I want you children and you who have grown up in the church, if you've not come to grips with all those things, today's the day to do it. And we're going to look at that briefly right now. At the end of our passage, beginning in verse 21, let me read 21 through 23. I think we have very important instructions to us. And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now He has reconciled in the body of His flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in His sight. So Paul is writing to the people who have actually embraced the way. They are the ones who have said, yes, I'm a sinner. I've confessed my sins. I believe there's only one way for those sins to be forgiven, and that's through the blood of Jesus Christ embracing His sacrifice on the cross for me and my sin, and trust Him alone as I drive through this fog of life this morning. Hey, I got it in as an illustration. As I drive through this fog of life trying to understand my, the meaning, my meaning of existence and what I'm supposed to do with my life and, and how far all that's going to reach, it's going to reach into eternity whether you're a believer or not. The question is, Will you be judged for your sin? Or will you live forgiven of your sin in the next life? And so you've got to come to grips with it here as you're going through this fog. Paul's saying, and you who were once alienated as enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now He has reconciled in the body of the flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in His sight. Those of you who have embraced the way, this is your hope. You're going to be blameless and above reproach in His sight. When you die, you will receive the reward you don't deserve. You will receive the reward promised to you in the blood of Jesus Christ. Now verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the Gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. There's an implied warning here. Don't give up on that promise. The promise of Jesus Christ. Now, this is not to say that you can lose your salvation. I've got to be really careful here. Verse 23 warns against abandoning the way of reconciliation. This we call the perseverance of the saints. Don't abandon it. Persevere. Because you're going to be tempted to turn on the faith. And I think in our day, those temptations are going to become greater. So we call this the perseverance of the saints. 
This is also the place where some Christians become very confused in their thinking. Some Christians assert that because Paul warns against moving from the hope of the gospel, that Christians can lose their salvation. That's not what being, is being taught here. We must be careful to grasp what Paul is warning here. There is a more literal translation that I do believe is helpful to understand these verses. This is the literal translation of this verse. Since surely you are persisting in the faith, grounded and settled, and are not being removed from the expectation of the evangel, which you hear, which is being heralded in the entire creation, which is under heaven, of which I, Paul, became the dispenser. That's the most literal translation of this passage. Notice that it begins, since surely you are persisting in the faith. The assumption here is that you are being faithful. That's what Paul is saying. As you are being faithful, grounded and settled, and are not being removed from the expectation of the evangel, which you hear, which is being heralded to the entire creation which is under heaven, which I, Paul, have become the dispenser. Paul is telling us that we have to remain in this faith throughout our lives. And God will keep us there. Paul, or John writes in his, his Gospel that we are in the clutches of God for those who believe in Christ as their Savior. And you cannot be removed from His hand. When God clutches you for salvation, you can't be removed. So the question then is, is my salvation true? Do I truly believe? How then are we to understand this passage? Here's my interpretation, which I share with many learned theologians. I'm I'm not saying I'm a learned theologian. I'm saying I share the same opinions that they have about this passage. True saving faith cannot be lost. Not because we are so strong as to never be tempted otherwise, but because God keeps us in His faith. We persevere because God holds on to us. Not because we're so strong that we can do it. That is what I think Paul is teaching us here. You've got to trust in God's promises. That's part of your faith. I believe Paul is contrasting those who appear to fall away with those who persist. The author of the book of Hebrews does the same thing with additional information that I think is helpful. If you want, turn to Hebrews chapter 6. We're going to look at four verses. In verses 4-6, through we read these words, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. These are very interesting verses. The psalmist tells us, taste and see that the Lord, He is good. Here there's another reference to tasting. I think it's a different kind of tasting. There are those of us who taste something and we'll never taste it again. I mean, for me, it's Brussels sprouts. For others, it's other things, you know. 
It just doesn't have any appeal to me whatsoever. There are those who taste things and can taste them again, and then over time, it's a learned appreciation for the thing. That's coffee. Okay? When you first tasted coffee, it was bitter, wasn't it? And yet, over time, if you're a coffee drinker, you could you embrace that, that bitterness because there are other benefits there that you didn't have before. You understand what I'm saying? There are, other, there are other things that you taste and you say, I can't get enough of this. Ice cream. Uh, and maybe those who are lactose intolerant say it's something else. But you understand what I'm saying. There are things that when you taste them, you know, you could, that bag of potato chips, you could eat every last one of them. Uh, you can't eat just one, right? You understand what I'm saying? There are things that are so enjoyable that you just can't get enough of it. But there are other things that you can taste and you can turn away from it. And I think that's what the Bible's describing here. There are people who taste the things of God and it has no effect on them. There, there is no faith there. There's nothing to embrace the benefits of those things. And we have an example of that in the Scriptures. A very clear example. It's in the life of Esau in the Old Testament. Jacob, or Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. And Esau was the eldest of the two, and so he was the son of promise according to the Scriptures. What that means is in the, covenant, the Old Covenant, the son of promise, the, the eldest son received a double portion at the death of the father. A couple reasons for that. Uh, and, but, but suffice it to say, he got more than the other sons. It, it was God's economy, the way he structured things in the Old Covenant. All right? it, it, it wasn't because he may have been more faithful or anything like that. It just happened to be the way it was structured. Okay, And, uh, and Esau, the, the eldest son, received a double portion. During his years, his early adult years, um, he, he was a man of the field. He liked to hunt and fish and do those kinds of things. Uh, one day he comes home. He's ravished. He's hungry as he can be. His brother, who's been at home, uh, and I don't want to disparage his brother at all. It may have been that he just happened to be home that day. Uh, had been fixing a meal. Esau comes home. And he offers to trade his birthright, these promises of God, for a bowl of soup. Now, um, my guess is every one of us have done something very short-sighted in our lives. And then, not too long after that, we come to grips with how ridiculously bad a decision that was. Uh, I think Esau was one of those, this is one of those days for Esau. He makes a bad decision and he's going to come to grips with it. I don't have time to look at the passage, but you can look it up in Genesis. He makes a bad decision. He trades his birthright to his brother for a bowl of soup, but he traded more than just his birthright. He traded away his salvation. That's how how important this decision was. He didn't realize that. Or if he did, he didn't care. 
He had no faith at all in the promises of God. Jacob, on the other hand, his brother says, well, I understand what's being given up here. I'll take it. If you don't want it, I'll take it. I'll take it in all its ways. Paul, the apostle, is writing to the Romans. And in chapter 9 of that book, he writes these words. Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. These are the words he attributes to God. Jacob I love, God says, and Esau I hated. Did Esau taste of the things of God? He was circumcised. He lived in the house of one of the patriarchs of the Old Testament. His grandfather was Abraham. His father was Isaac. Did he not know the promises of God? My guess is he knew them better than you do. He had tasted of the things of God and he turned away from it. And God hated him for it. And this gives us a sense of the meaning of Hebrews 6. For in the case of those who once have been enlightened, have tasted of the heavenly gift, have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. Esau openly shamed the promises of God and traded them away. And God returned to him judgment for it. This is how important it is when confronted with the way Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world who's willing to forgive your sins if you but humble yourself in repentance and ask for that forgiveness. Truly ask. He will lift you up, the Scriptures tell us. He will give you newness of life, and not just any kind of life, but abundant life and eternal life. But if you turn away from it, like Esau turned away from his promises, beware. Beware. You may not be able to come back. And if you read that passage in the Old Testament about Esau, he tried to come back. And God refused him. This is why perseverance is so important, brethren. Young people, hear this. What you're being taught by your parents, what you're hearing from the pulpit in this church, in your Sunday school classes, this is important stuff. This is eternal stuff. This is not just something you you hear on Sundays and then walk away from for the rest of the week. This has eternal consequences. I'm giving you a strong warning today, but I can't do that without also saying this. Do you understand what God is promising to you if you put your trust in Him? Do you understand the beauty that's ahead of you? Yeah, we're we're driving around in a fog, right? Like we did this morning. We don't see it clearly. We see descriptions of it in the Bible. Spend some time in the last three chapters of the book of Revelation. The joy that's set before us is inexpressible. And that's what God is promising. Those who put their faith in His Son, the way to be reconciled with Him. 
the Creator of all things. We don't understand. We can read the first chapters of the book of the Bible and understand what the garden was like before the fall. Uh, and then we can read at the end when the garden is restored and a great city is, is built filled with people. Do you know how many believers there will be in the kingdom of God? It's not going to be 144,000. Trust me. It's going to be a whole lot more. In fact, the Scriptures say it's a, it's a number so large you can't count that high. You cannot count that high. It's, a, it's, a, it, it's, a, it's so large it can't, the numbers cannot be numbered. The Scriptures describe it. And it's going to be a glorious place. But not just the place itself. What's going to happen in our lives. The joy that we have knowing that we've been reconciled to the living God for eternity. And we can have long discussions about it. Not an hour or two hours. That's not a long discussion in heaven. We're talking millennia. That's a long discussion. And we can enjoy that. And we'll enjoy that. But the Bible tells us we must persevere. Don't lose heart. Don't get faint-hearted. Don't be, you'll be tempted to turn away, but don't. Because there's more to this than you understand. And it's a great promise. Well, I wanted to give us a sense of the consequences of Esau. I'd like to... <clears throat> there's more I could say. I'm going to have to, to stop. But each of us should ask this question. What about our faith? Is it saving faith? Is it the faith that when tempted to do otherwise... I realize those temptations aren't worth it. Why stay there? Why even think about it? Let's keep moving on. Uh, I hope I have that strength should the Lord walk us through trials where our lives are at stake. It's one thing to be belittled before men. It's a whole other thing to lose your life for your faith. But isn't that what our Savior did? His faith in the promises of God were such that He was willing to lay down His life for us. And if we truly believe in the promises that God gives us, that they will sustain us even after this life, that's just a, an action in the midst of a walk. It's not something that should scare us eternally. Brethren, don't just taste the things of God. Rather, when you taste them, feed upon them and be nourished by them. That's what the Scriptures are teaching us here. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Feed on Him by faith. And you will be saved. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, we thank You for once again being reminded of the need for reconciliation and the means by which that reconciliation is had. And I pray for each one of us that we would examine our own faith. Those who have persevered for many years, maybe those who have persevered only for a short time. But is it the, the kind of faith that Esau had or is it uh, the faith that Paul had who was an enemy of yours and you brought him to salvation dramatically and He gave His life for His faith, as did Peter. 
as did only but a couple of the apostles. And Father, help us to walk in the steps of our Savior, being courageous in the midst of persecution. Help us to gladly, with winsomeness, share the way to others that they need to repent of their sins and to trust Christ by faith. We pray that we would be instruments to share that good news to others, Lord, that You would bless us to have the courage to do that, to do it winsomely, but to show others the great sacrifice You've made on behalf of mankind to bring men to salvation and that we would proclaim that with clarity. Father, we pray for the nations of the world and ask that You would thwart the efforts of the wicked one. Only You can do it with success. So we pray, Father, that You would thwart the efforts of the wicked one and his minions and those who follow after them. I pray that You would bring conversion to the Muslim world, to the Hindu world, to the Buddhist world, to those who believe in Shintoism and all other forms of thought that are against Your Son, Jesus Christ, the way. And I pray, Father, that the glory of the knowledge of the Lord would cover the earth as the waters cover the seas, as the prophet foretold. We pray that You would make traitors of the armies of Satan that they might become believers in the army of Christ. Father, we pray for those in authority over us in the civil realm and in the church. In the civil realm, Lord, there are many who do not bow their knee to Your Son, Jesus. Bring the Gospel to bear in their lives and turn their hearts as You did Saul. But should they refuse, Lord, we pray that You would sovereignly remove them and replace them with men who bow their knee to Your Son, Jesus. The way. And Father, we pray in the church. There are so many in the church who do not truly believe as Esau did not truly believe. We pray that You would make them evident to us. That they would understand that their faith is in the wrong places that they need to put their faith in Christ. Bring them to conversion as You did Saul. But should they refuse, Lord, remove them from the church that the clearness of the Gospel can be presented to all men. Father, we also pray in our own homes for ourselves and for our wives and children. We pray that You would give us clarity of thought when it comes to the Gospel. That we'd not be confused with the plurality of thought in society, but rather the clarity of the Gospel and the need to pursue that by all means, in all ways. We trust You for this, Lord. We thank You for these promises. Help us to embrace that with both arms.